In our church bulletin Sunday after Sunday, we are reminded of the persecution of followers of Jesus in many places in the world. For example, the 24 Christians who were killed by Muslims in Nigeria just a few weeks ago, killed with the assistance of Nigerian soldiers. Or consider the 10 Christians who were beaten to unconsciousness in Vietnam when police raided their worship service. Or Christians in China who are routinely discriminated against when it comes to employment opportunities and education and so on. Now, this kind of persecution is not new, but has been the consistent experience of Christians for 2,000 years. Polycarp, who was the bishop of the city of Smyrna in the second century, when he was ordered by the proconsul before whom he stood on trial, to renounce Jesus and to swear instead by the Roman emperor, Polycarp said, 86 years have I served Jesus and he has never once wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And accordingly then, Polycarp was burned to death. Now we have not faced persecution like that, certainly, though someday perhaps we might. We've not been forced to choose between Jesus and life or between Jesus and freedom. None of us has had to go into hiding from our own family because of our faith. And perhaps you've wondered what you would do in a situation like that. And yet, though our life has never been at stake, many of us do know what it is like to be faced with a choice, though different in degree is not different in kind. For example... Obeying God without compromise might mean earning your boss's or your co-worker's displeasure. Maybe it will cost you your job. Obeying God without compromise might mean that you'll be the topic of gossip and mocking at school. Obeying God without compromise might mean the end of a relationship. Maybe living the lifestyle to which you've become accustomed requires your ignoring what you suspect God is asking of you. And maybe to obey God might cause some financial worries, you think. Perhaps even honoring God above all might lead to criticism from others in the church. Because the fact is that the fundamental question underlying Christianity and what it means to be a Christian is not the question, do you believe in Jesus? But it's the question, who is your Lord? And the Christian's ultimate allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ brings with it both inevitable persecution and inextinguishable joy. As we are making our way through the book of Acts, we are seeing a community of people whose ultimate allegiance is to their God. We see what it costs them. We see the joy that it brought them. And we see how they changed the world. The whole book of Acts, as we have previously seen, is about the progress of the Word of God, that is, the authoritative gospel of Jesus Christ. It's progress from Jerusalem to Rome. And wherever this gospel goes, it bears fruit. And the church, the disciples of Jesus, the church multiplies. And so we see these repeated statements in Acts, like the Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. And it's statements like these that are the thread that tie the narrative of Acts together. Now the proclamation of the gospel in Acts always has two effects. 
as it also does today. It brings people to Jesus, and it raises the hostility of others. So in Acts, there are thousands of new Christians, and there is opposition. Chapters 2 and 3 recount the great successes. Thousands are saved at Pentecost. Several thousand more again as Peter proclaims Jesus after the healing of the crippled man in chapters 3 and 4. The rest of chapter 4, though, and chapter 5 highlight the opposition. The religious leaders threaten Peter and John not to speak in Jesus' name. Acts 5 begins with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Satan's attempt to rot the church from the inside with greed and with hypocrisy. But these attempts to destroy the ministry of the gospel fail signally. After the threats of chapter 4, the church prays for boldness and, empowered by the Holy Spirit, speak of Jesus with great boldness. After the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, which struck fear into everyone who heard of it, inside and outside the church. After that, we read the description in verses 12 to 16. The ongoing public teaching in the temple in Solomon's portico. Miracles done regularly by the apostles. The Christians held in high esteem by the people and held in fear by others. People flocking to be healed. Multitudes of men and women being added to the Lord. In other words, public effective ministry that enjoys the awe and favor of the public. That doesn't sound very much like the church in our day, does it? Why is that? Well, we can talk about the Holy Spirit or about lack of prayer or the lack of the primacy of the Word of God, and those are all correct. But they're all aspects of the one great issue, which is this, that the world around us does not see a church whose ultimate, absolutely, absolute, single-minded, passionate, and joyful allegiance is to God. They don't see a church whose driving motivation in all things is to love God by obeying Him. There are flashes of it, to be sure, and I dare say even whole congregations of whom this is true, but our world does not identify that with the church. But on the other hand, if Christians, if we as Christians increasingly said, I will seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, I will obey God, then what would we see? Well, we would see, I believe, miracles and healings. We would see and experience so much greater joy, and we'll come back to that this morning. We would see the church of Jesus Christ held in high esteem, and we would see some fear. People wouldn't dabble in Christianity or do it halfway. And we would also see an increase in hostility and in persecution. For the gospel of Jesus challenges the values and the power structures of the world. And so after the description of the church in chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, we have now our account for today of the first real persecution of Christians. Chapter 5 and verse 17, that the stunning impact of the gospel of Jesus raises the ire of the high priest and the other religious leaders who are filled with jealousy and have the apostles arrested. 
Now notice that it's not a concern for truth or concern for the honor of God that moves these men to action. It's jealousy, which immediately signals to us that this is about power. This is about authority. And we're reminded of the comment in Mark 15, verse 10, at Jesus' trial, where Pontius Pilate understands that it's out of envy that these same religious leaders have handed Jesus over to him. So the apostles are arrested and thrown into the slammer overnight to await trial in the morning. However, in the night, an angel of God comes and releases them and instructs them with these words, go and stand in the temple and teach the people the words of this life, which as soon as day breaks, they do. It's an interesting phrase the angel uses, isn't it? Teach the words of this life. First of all, it is life. It's not just a creed. It's not just a faith system. It's not just something to believe. But it is a gospel of life. Like Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32, verse 47, these are not mere words. These are your life. Well, how much more so is this true of the gospel of Jesus? Jesus, who said, I have come that they might have life, John chapter 10. Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14. See, when we declare Jesus, we are not just declaring facts, but we are proclaiming the truth that is life. And secondly, they are words of life. That this is a gospel that must be declared because faith comes by hearing. I had a conversation with a colleague once over the quote, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And I said to him, it's impossible to preach the gospel without words. I mean, we can and we should serve the poor until we're blue in the face. But people need to hear the name of Jesus. They need to hear about the cross and the empty tomb. They need to hear the words sin and grace and repentance and forgiveness. And yes, the gospel must be lived. It must be demonstrated. But our lives will not be recognized as a demonstration of the gospel until and unless the gospel is spoken. Teach the people the words of life, the angel says. And so Don finds the apostles back in their familiar place, the temple, Solomon's portico most likely, doing the very thing that got them arrested in the first place, teaching Jesus to the people, proclaiming the words of life to the people. Now meanwhile, the religious council assembles and sends to the prison for the apostles. But the officers come back empty-handed and confused. We found the prison securely locked, they say, and the guards are standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 23. And this perplexes the council until someone comes and reports, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Well, then the apostles are promptly rearrested and brought back to the council where the high priest interrogates them. 
And the high priest says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Interesting that this is their concern. Apparently they've forgotten that at Jesus' trial before Pilate, they themselves had yelled to Pilate, may his blood be on us and on our children. Matthew 25, 27, verse 25. In the exploding ministry of the church and the ongoing proclamation of the gospel of, of the crucified and risen Jesus, the religious leaders' consciences are being pricked. They're being reminded of their own guilt. Indeed, when Peter preaches, this is one of the things that he talked about. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 17, he assigns the guilt for Jesus' death on both the public and on their rulers, this council. And previously, before this very council, chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says to them directly, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So Peter isn't shying away from talking publicly about the guilt of the religious leaders, and they know it, and they're feeling it. And so they remind Peter now of what they had said to him in chapter 4, verse 18, where they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We've been clear, they say, don't talk about Jesus. And yet not only have you not stopped, the whole city is full of this teaching. And then Peter and the other apostles give this magnificent reply, the same essential reply he gave them before. Chapter 5 and verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now in chapter 4, he had said to them, Let it be known to you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this healed man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then later he said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And I wonder if when Peter says this to them in chapter 5, if he's thinking back to what he said in chapter 4 and saying, didn't we already have this conversation? But he gives his answer again. We have to obey God rather than men. I want to highlight a couple things about Peter's response here in chapter 5. The first having to do with what is the essential gospel. And I've already mentioned this when we looked at chapter 2 and at chapter 3 and at chapter 4, that whenever Peter or the apostles 
have any opportunity to say anything to the public or to the authorities before whom they stand on trial. They always immediately talk about Jesus. They always preach the gospel. And when they do, they always say the same things. They always talk about Jesus' death. They always talk about Jesus' resurrection, that he is alive. They always talk about the fact that they are witnesses to his resurrection. They always make reference to the Holy Spirit. They always make reference to Old Testament prophecy that Jesus died and rose again in fulfillment of prophecy. And here in chapter 5, they make reference to the fact that God is the God of our fathers. Make reference to their history in the Old Testament. They always talk about the fact that forgiveness of sins is in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what Christians have always proclaimed. This is what we proclaim. It's what we're called to preach. These are the words of life. Jesus died. Jesus is risen. Jesus is the Son of God. Forgiveness of sins is in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Did you notice in Peter's response... This phrase, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That repentance itself is something that God gives. It's not something that we conjure up within ourselves. It's not something that arises from our own hearts in response to a truth understood. But even repentance, even sorrow over sin is something that God does in us and for us. It is something that he gives to us. And so we see again that to be saved from sin and to be a follower of Jesus Christ is entirely a work of God. We don't bring anything to the table. We're, we're too sinful to bring anything to the table. Unless God makes a change within us, we can't even respond. We can't even have faith to become a follower of Jesus. Unless God grants repentance. That too is part of the gospel. So that's the first thing I want to draw our attention to in Peter's response. Just the the continual, the consistent essentials of the gospel articulated again and again and again. And we make church so complex. And there's so much ministry that can and should be done by the church in our culture. And Christianity can become so big and there's so much that can be a part of it. But underneath it all, the bottom line to it all, is that the world needs to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for their sins, for our sins, and rose again. And that in Him we proclaim forgiveness, peace with God. And that this is the message of life. We cannot, we must not lose sight of this essential core to the ministry of the church. And we're, reminded of, we're reminded of that again in Peter's words here. 
It's the first thing I want us to notice again. The second thing is Peter's phrase, we must obey God. I draw our attention to the reality of obedience, that this is a lordship issue for Peter. I mean, this whole passage is about obedience. This whole passage is about authority. And the tension or the clash, the battle between the claims for allegiance of Peter and the apostles and of all of God's people. Our attention is drawn to it again and again in this passage. The jealousy of the Sanhedrin, which I think is a jealousy over their fading influence and the increased influence of the church. The reality of their power being exercised in the arresting and imprisoning of the apostles overnight. How they frame, how the high priest frames his interrogation. Look, we commanded you, we strictly charged you with our authority, but you've defied our authority. And Peter's response, we must obey God. Peter's testimony that Jesus is not only Savior, but leader. God has exalted Jesus as Savior and leader, Prince. This is all about authority. And Peter is standing before the religious authorities and declaring to them that he is compelled to obey God first, that his allegiance is to God above all. And that is true for all of us as Christians as well. Now, we are commanded elsewhere in the scripture to obey and to respect our civil authorities. This is not a license to reject or disobey those in authority over us. But if those civil authorities use their authority to demand what is contrary to what God has demanded then as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, our first allegiance and obedience is to God. And Peter understood where his obedience had to be directed. Jesus had commissioned them, you shall be my witnesses. Jesus has been exalted as leader. Their declaration that Jesus was Lord meant that Peter's allegiance was to Jesus. He affirms the absolute lordship of God. And dare we, Peter says, dare we do differently than what God has commanded? No. And dare we do differently than what God has commanded? Peter and the other apostles were compelled by their desire to obey their Lord. They were compelled by their experience of the living Jesus. Again, back in chapter 4, we must obey and we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. The twin motivations of, of obedience, but even if it wasn't just obedience, Peter says, we can't help it. We can't shut up. You tell us not to preach or teach the name of Jesus, but we have to. We're compelled. There is a fire that burns within us to let people know about Jesus, the Christ. We have to obey. 
And for us too, we have to obey. Who is our Lord? To whom is our obedience bound? In verse 27 of chapter 5, Peter's response enrages the council. And not just because he's refusing to bow to their authority, but also, and maybe especially, because Peter has just implied that they themselves, the council, are the ones who are being disobedient to God. And that God has given his Holy Spirit to the apostles and not to them. Well, that enrages the council. and So they want to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee, Gamaliel, has them put outside, has the apostles put outside, and addresses the council and calls for caution. He reminds them of a couple others in their recent history who have sought to stir up the people and failed and died in the process. And Gamaliel says, look, if if this movement concerning Jesus, if this is of God, if this is of men, of human origin, it will fail. We won't have to lift a finger to stop it. It'll fail. But I tell you, if this is from God, you will not be able to stop it. And you'd better be careful lest you be found to be opposing God. The council receives his wise advice, but they still have the apostles beaten. And then they reiterate their command not to preach Jesus. Stop it, they say again. This is the first real persecution in Acts. There have been threats before, but now they're beaten. And there's more persecution to come in Acts. This is the first real suffering. And historically, I'm not sure that the persecution of Christians has stopped since that day. And then the disciples leave, we read, rejoicing. They've just had their backs beaten, the flesh stripped off their backs. They leave bloody and in pain, and yet they leave rejoicing. Rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount had said to them, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And maybe now for the first time the disciples understand what lies behind Jesus' words. That there is a joy in suffering for Jesus' sake. Richard Wormbrand, a pastor, was imprisoned in communist East Europe. Imprisoned because of his ministry, imprisoned because of his faith. And yet he writes that in his time in prison there would be occasions where he was overcome with an almost inexpressible joy. He was tortured in prison starved and beaten in prison, and yet sometimes he would find himself dancing around his cell in a spirit of worship, overcome by a sensation of joy in Jesus Christ, joy in being able to suffer for Jesus' sake. 
Many Christians in history have experienced that very thing. And the apostles rejoice. And rejoice because they're considered worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Not just rejoicing in suffering generally. Not rejoicing because there is a crisis in their life. But rejoicing because they get to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. That they've been worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And I wondered as I thought about this text this week. That if we, don't, if we don't suffer for the sake of Jesus, maybe it's because we're not the kind of witnesses for Jesus that are worthy of that kind of suffering. That we don't attract the attention of the forces of opposition to the gospel. And therefore we are not persecuted and don't suffer. Maybe the ease of our Christian existence speaks more of our spiritual unhealth than our spiritual vitality. And I wonder what it would look like if we were the kind of Christians who were worth persecuting because their absolute obedience and allegiance to God could not be quashed. The disciples... Rejoice because they're counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And not only do they rejoice in their suffering, they continue doing the very thing that caused the suffering in the first place. They never stop proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. They do it publicly in the temple. They do it from door to door, home to home, in their relationships, in their networks, in their circles. It's what makes them the church. Their proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. What a picture of obedience and allegiance. What a picture of an on fire, committed to Jesus, community of faith. And so as we come to the end of this chapter 5, we're compelled to ask, to whom are we obedient? To whom are you obedient? Do you obey God rather than men? Or do we obey men rather than God? How do we obey men rather than God? In so many ways. We obey men rather than God when we believe the media and the culture that tells us that life is all about me. I have the right to be happy and to seek my own comfort. We believe men, we obey men rather than God when When we think financially, when we believe that if we give to the work of God and the church and the kingdom of God, that we will not have enough to live on, that our own rights and wants and comforts come first. We believe that if we trust God with our finances, that that will cause us anxiety. We believe men rather than God. We obey men rather than God when we believe that we have a right to hold on to our anger. When we believe that we're not ready to forgive. When we believe that we don't need to be concerned for the poor. In a couple of weeks, Gospel for Asia is going to be here. And we're going to be confronted with the reality of literally millions of children in India 
who are treated appallingly and have profound needs that we can't begin to imagine. And we obey men rather than God when we believe that those kids in Asia are not our responsibility. When we think that they're not our concern. Is there a situation in your life right now where you are confronted with the choice to obey men or to obey yourself rather than to obey God? This is not a call to better performance. It's not, it's not a word from the pulpit to roll up your sleeves and try harder and, and be better or God will get angry at you. It's not that at all. I think it's very significant that the apostles left rejoicing. Kara, my wife, has often prayed for our children that they would know the joy of obedience. And I love that phrase. The reality that to obey those in authority, those in God-given authority over us, that to obey them is a path to joy. That it's good for our kids to obey their parents, and how much more true if we obey God, that if we surrender ourselves fully to the Lordship of God, that that is the path to joy. We say that Jesus is Lord. That means he is our leader. Do we really mean that? Do we really believe that the call to be Obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is life, is joy. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and his righteousness. And all these other things that we strive after and pursue will be added to us as well. But it starts with seeking first the kingdom. In your life, seeking first the kingdom. In our church, seeking first the kingdom. It starts with our being consciously, consistently, joyfully committed to doing the things that God calls us to do. To living our life under the priorities that God sets to being the kind of people and the kind of church that God calls us to be. And at all costs and in all circumstances, no matter the opposition, to declare to the world that Jesus, the Son of God, died for their sins, lives today, and that in Him there is peace with God eternally. Lord, would you give us the faith and the boldness, the inner compulsion to be fully and joyfully obedient to you and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.